Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. When you wake up Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning. Great to have your company right around Australia here on Marcus Paul in the Morning via the iHeartRadio app. If you haven't already downloaded it, make sure you do to your phone or to your computer, your laptop, uh, whatever, your tablet. Uh, It's a great way to listen to the program between 7 and 9 each day live around Australia. Uh, That's Australian Eastern Standard Time, of course. Uh, Maybe you're listening via the TuneIn app or, as we love having you listen to us on starterfm.com.au, please uh, let people know on your social media where we are and and what we're all about here. Uh, In particular, give us a follow on our Facebook page. Uh, That's where you'll find all of the program content. And give us a a subscribe as well on YouTube, Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, a very busy 24 hours news-wise. Look, there's been a lot of discussion from yesterday's New South Wales state budget. And it was, I think, a uh, quite a progressive budget. One you wouldn't normally get from a Liberal government. But you have to remember, we're closing in on a state election. And the checkbook was out. And eventually... It'll have to be paid for. Now, predictably, uh, the opposition and many claim that uh, Matt Keane, he's the new treasurer, his first budget uh, was a big spending item, um, obviously designed with the next March's state general election in mind. Now, of course, that's politics. Um, However, I think when you look at it, being fair, I think it was a pretty solid budget, to be perfectly honest. And, you know, if you're into progressive ideas and you like a spend, you know, on, on women's issues and you like a spend uh, on things that, you know, money uh, for a society is good for, first home buyers and uh, relief in certain areas, and you can't really criticise it. The only concern, of course, is that, you know, if they do retain government next year after the state election... Maybe we'll be in for austerity. That is a really nasty, mean budget. Who knows? Anyway, I'll go through the winners and the losers out of the state budget yesterday. Look, I have to say it was almost overshadowed uh, by uh, the fact that um, the New South Wales state government are still blowing with unions. Now, I heard a lot of right-wing commentators yesterday afternoon say that the unions continue uh, to be involved in political bastardry in relation to strike action. Well, we did tell you 2022 was going to be the year of the strike. Not only are the public school teachers going on strike next Thursday, June the 30th, but they'll be joined by their colleagues from the Catholic education system. Yeah, that follows a meeting yesterday. Uh, Now, unions obviously are involved. That's the education uh, union, the Catholic side of it, and, of course, the Teachers' Federation. Angelo Gavrilatos, uh, he, of course, is up to it uh, again, uh, bluing and sparring with Dominic Perrottet and the New South Wales State Government. They want 
higher wages. They want better working conditions and they want effectively a better outlook for teachers. Now, we know there are teacher shortages. The the thing is, the, the Treasurer and the Premier just aren't listening. What they want is what they call a fair and equitable uh, solution, that's teachers and the unions, that is a pay rise to match inflation. Now, we know it's been capped at 3.5% by the government. Uh, Teachers have had enough. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about this teacher strike next Thursday. Uh, It comes a day before (laughs) the school holidays. So the timing probably could have been better. But look, how long has this mob been in government for? And you have to say, in the last two to three years, the education system in the state of New South Wales has gone by the wayside. Teachers are leaving the profession in droves. Why? Well, there are, it's a, there's a myriad of reasons, and it's very complex. But ultimately, teachers want to feel like the profession is valued. And I don't think the state government does believe that. Well, certainly, they're not offering remuneration to reflect that. Anyway, I'll talk about that. That's coming up. More details on John Barillaro. Uh, yes, the former Deputy Premier of New South Wales, still making news. Apparently, there was a shortlist for the gig that was given to him, but it was ignored and the position re-advertised. No wonder the state opposition will today be asking for Mr Barillaro to remain in the country while this thing's looked into. Yeah, we'll go through that. Now, Lisa Wilkinson. She's made news, and I want to talk too much about this because, you know, it might be a little hypocritical, but I've always been concerned by the the continual commentary of the Brittany Higgins situation. And it would appear that... (laughs) The Chief Magistrate in the Australian Capital Territory shares my viewpoint that far too many commentators have jumped on this and effectively made it all about themselves, like Lisa Wilkinson did with her story and and then her Logie's acceptance speech the other night, which again put Brittany Higgins and Bruce Lerman, the alleged rapist, again in the public space. Can't do that. Because it's before the courts. How on earth this fellow is expected to get a fair trial now, I'll never know. And I, it's not the first time I've said this. I said it last year, and when the story first broke, I said, yep, uh, this is the situation. These are the allegations. She needs to go to the police. They should never, ever, in my opinion anyway, because I respect the, the law and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean any disrespect to Brittany Higginson, certainly uh, not to, to Le- well, Lisa Wilkinson, I don't know. But look, at the end of the day, a court with a jury will decide on this issue, not a commentator on the television who seemingly has made it all about herself and her career. Enough said about that. Uh, all right. Let's get on with it. The latest news, we'll have it on the half hour, thanks to Air News, as always. So um, stick around for that. Some great tunes for a midweek as well. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. Stand by. Okay.
Okay, welcome back Wednesday morning with Marcus Paul right around Australia. Well, of course, yesterday was Budget Day in New South Wales with the new Treasurer, Mac Keane, handing down his first budget. Of course, Mac Keane replaced the new Premier, Dominic Perrottet, who was the former Treasurer of New South Wales. I thought this morning I'd go through some of the big changes that could affect you, and look, I don't think they'll be any bigger than the reforms that are going to happen with the New South Wales property market. So you could argue, I guess, that first home buyers are a winner out of the budgets yesterday. It includes big reforms for people looking to enter the pricey property market in New South Wales. Now, from January the 16th next year, Many first-home buyers will be able to elect to pay an annual land tax instead of a hefty upfront sum in stamp duty. The choice will be made available to first-home buyers purchasing a home up to the value of $1.5 million. Now, if buyers decide to opt out of paying stamp duty, they will pay $400 plus 0.3% of the land value per year. Meanwhile, a $780 million shared equity scheme is set up to help up around 3,000 frontline workers, also single parents and singles aged over 50 to buy their first home. So there are some reforms in the wind. It is quite a, a progressive budget, this one. Now, it would see the state contribute 40% of equity for a new home and 30% for an existing home. The scheme is similar to the policy that Labor leader Anthony Albanese took to last month's federal election. Uh, the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, said this state's plan would be trialled for two years. Now, people would need to earn a maximum of $90,000 individually or have a combined income of $120,000 per year to be eligible. They will have to contribute a 2% deposit under the scheme on homes worth up to $950,000 in metro areas and up to dollars in regional areas. Home building is also getting a cash injection with nearly a half a billion dollars in funding to supercharge the approval of new housing. Now, the planning project includes $300 million to co-fund shovel-ready infrastructure projects, $89 million to accelerate housing approvals, and $69.8 million to expedite rezoning. Now, another winner out of yesterday's New South Wales state budget, palliative care. Palliative care services in some parts of the state will be given a multi-million dollar boost. The government will commit $743 million over five years to increase the number of beds and improve access to treatment and hire 600 new palliative health care staffers. More than $90 million will be set aside to build new dedicated palliative care units at Westmead and Nepean hospitals. Now, the Premier, Dominic Perrottet, said the boost was the most important commitment in this year's budget. There he goes. He said, whoever you are, wherever you are in our great state, as you come to the end of your life, you will have the care and support that you need. And that is the sign of a true and just society, said the Premier. Now, working parents are also getting a break out of this big spending budget from the New South Wales government. They've locked in a $775 million commitment over the next four years to drive down childcare costs 
and increase the number of places. Under the plan, the state government will give subsidies to private childcare providers to ensure some spots will be set at certain prices. The Treasurer, Mac Keane, claims these changes will mean a middle-income Sydney family with one child in full-time care in a state government subsidised centre is expected to save up to $3,900 a year. And that's a big saving. While the saving in regional areas is predicted to be up to $7,800 a year. Now, the paid parental leave scheme will also be overhauled to scrap the distinction between primary and secondary carers in a bid to help women return to the workforce earlier. Now, instead, every mother and father in the public sector will be entitled to at least 14 weeks of paid parental leave. Now, for mothers, there will be a grant to help them re-enter the workforce. The grants will give women up to $5,000 from a $32 million budget pool for clothes, training and technology. Meanwhile, young kids in New South Wales will have an extra year of education under a new plan. Beginning in 2030, this plan will affect four and five-year-olds and fall a year before what is now known as kindergarten. So the state government is committed as well to spending $5.8 billion over the next 10 years to make the blueprint a reality and some of the money was set aside in yesterday's budget. Now, as far as health's concerned, frontline health workers will get a one-off $3,000 thank you payment. Uh, Controversial because some missed out, including frontline police officers. Anyway, this thank you payment will be for their work during the COVID-19 pandemic. The bonus, as we know, is part of a $4.5 billion funding package for the health sector, which also includes plans to hire an extra 10,000 staff, and that will include 1,050 doctors, around 3,500 nurses, and up to 200 new midwives. Now, the public sector wage cap has also been lifted to 3% this year, with a further 0.5% increase next year, taking it to 3.5%. Several unions in the sector have criticised, of course, the 3% rise as a cut in real terms, as it is, as we know, lower than the 5% inflation mark. There's also $883 million set aside over the next four years to attract and retain health workers in the bush, and more than $400 million to fast-track elective surgeries delayed due to COVID-19. All right, well, we'll take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, I'll go through some more of the goodies in yesterday's New South Wales state budget, including what was in it for First Nations people, uh, what the spend will be on science, Uh, Now, drivers are also a winner out of the budget yesterday, as is Western Sydney. Uh, The Northern Beaches, not so much. Uh, They're being referred to as the loser out of the budget. But importantly as well, women are among the big winners out of the Heritage budget. And I'll go through those details for you in just a few moments. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. It's a budget wrap uh, this morning so far, and let's go through more of the winners out of uh, yesterday's big spending New South Wales state budget. 
Now, community-led Indigenous initiatives will receive funding as a part of a $401 million investment to help close the gap in life expectancy between First Nations and the national average. The New South Wales Coalition of Aboriginal Peak Organisations will lead the program. When challenged on the Coalition's failures in the years they've been in office, the Premier, Don Perrottet, said there were always things governments could do better... He said, and I quote, you've always got to be looking at new ways and innovative policy solutions. I think that's what's come through here. He said he's sick of us not getting ahead in this space. Uh, Look, money, of course, will also go to agencies within the Aboriginal community controlled organisations to promote groups that safeguard Indigenous language and culture. There'll be grants of up to a quarter of a million dollars there. The $401 million investment will come from a $716 million pool of funds for Indigenous housing, culture, language and community services. Now, it's hoped the other funds will be used to help make four and a half thousand homes in First Nations communities climate resistant and build new family centres as well as record and preserve Indigenous languages. And of course, well, it's been put on the back burner for now, but we learnt during the, uh, the latter stages of last week and over the weekend, you know, 25 odd million dollars set aside to put up the Aboriginal flag 24-7 on Sydney's Harbour Bridge. Now, at the moment, the government's having another look at the books in relation to that because, well, the public outcry was pretty clear. They should be doing that for a hell of a lot cheaper. Now, as far as science is concerned, a total of $119 million will be injected into the research and development of... RNA technology over the next 10 years, advances in this field were crucial to creating the messenger RNA COVID-19 vaccines, including those produced by Pfizer and Moderna. Now, the investment is expected to increase New South Wales's capability to combat the next pandemic, as well as cancer and genetic diseases. Now, the Science Minister, Alastair Henskins, said the collaboration would be made between the government and 14 New South Wales and ACT universities. All right, well, uh, they say that drivers are a winner out of yesterday's New South Wales budget. Well, (laughs) I guess we'll wait and see. Um, We're usually the loser, aren't we, drivers? You know, not that it's the state government's fault, the amount of money we spend on petrol at the moment, but certainly I think it is when it comes to tolls. They privatise the things and flog them off. Anyway, almost a half a million of us will be eligible for quarterly rebates on our toll bills as the government tries to address the rising cost of living in the state. The $520 million budget commitment over the next two years will apply to drivers who spend at least $375 a year on tolls. That would be most living in Sydney's west and southwest, I would imagine. Now, drivers can get up to $750 cash back, a move that is set to benefit western Sydney drivers, of course, who are hardest hit by tolls. The rebate program, which replaces the existing half-price registration scheme, will take effect from the 1st of July. Now, the Treasurer, Matt Keane, said the cost was a, quote, small price to pay to ensure motorists get more cash back. 
All right, well, speaking of Western Sydney, it could be argued that the greater west of the metropolitan area uh, are winners as well, despite rising construction costs. There's more than $600 million over the next four years in the budget to build stage two of the Parramatta Light Rail. Member for Parramatta, Jeff Lee, said the investment would support the growing population along the Parramatta River. Meanwhile, $60 million has been put aside to connect Parramatta to Circular Quay via a new 91-kilometre pathway, while a further $2.8 billion in transport infrastructure spending affecting Western Sydney is included in the budget. Now, this encompasses uh, around $240 million to help ease congestion on the Prospect Highway, while $1.2 billion will be spent over the next four years to upgrade the M12 to the under-construction Western Sydney International Airport. Now, as far as the airport's concerned and its surrounds, well, it is the target of significant investment, around $163 million for buildings, remediation of the site and research facilities in the Aerotropolis precinct. Hospitals in Rouse Hill and Liverpool will be given a share of $480 million as well for upgrades. And there will be $9.5 million to fix the paths in parks across the western suburbs and $15 million to build a special fence around the Georges River Koala Reserve. So that's good news. Now, losers in the budget. Well, (laughs) power bills. As you know, power is becoming more expensive and the new financial year, which starts very soon, will see prices rise. The default market offer the highest price a retailer can charge a customer for power is going up between 8.5% and 14.1% in New South Wales. While a complex series of national and international factors are impacting Australia's electricity sector, there's no immediate relief in the New South Wales budget for anybody. Uh, Matt Keane has announced an investment of $1.2 billion for renewable energy transmission. Uh, Perhaps that is the one bright spark there. Uh, Speaking of other losers, the Northern Beaches. Well, plans for a tunnel that would have connected the Northern Beaches to the Warringah Freeway and the rest of Sydney. Well, they're on ice, as you know. The project would have connected the peninsula to an upgraded Warringah Freeway and ultimately West Connects via a new road tunnel under Sydney Harbour. But rising construction costs meant infrastructure New South Wales suggested shelving most of the state's mega projects and the Beaches Link was a casualty. The project was expected to cost $6.3 billion over four years of construction and was slated for completion in 2028. Okay, this is Marcus Paul in the morning. A quick break. We'll come back with more on yesterday's New South Wales state budget. Yeah, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning on this Wednesday, uh, focusing at the moment on the New South Wales state budget, which was handed down yesterday by the new Treasurer, Mac Keane. And as promised by the Premier and the Government, women were prioritised. The biggest spend 
By far, more than $10 billion has been on improving affordability and accessibility of childcare and an overhaul of the preschool system that I mentioned earlier with the aim of making it more financially viable for women to get back into the workforce. Then there has been $100 million offered for domestic violence support services and an anti-street harassment initiative on top of funding commitments for IVF and menopause hubs. So, women certainly prioritised in this budget. Students, well, public schools in the state will be given $1.6 billion for upgrades and new buildings. Look, we know they're needed. The education infrastructure funding will help specific schools in places like Rouse Hill, Lennox Head, Concord and Albury, among others. Now, for parents, there will be a pool of $193 million for school supplies. Each child who attends a primary or secondary school will be eligible for a $150 subsidy from the government. The only requirement is that children must be New South Wales residents enrolled in school next year and listed on a Medicare card. That plan will come into effect on the 1st of January and run until June next year. Parents will also be able to send children to a pre-kindergarten year of schooling. This $5.8 billion plan will be rolled out over 10 years to have students in pre-K by 2030. And that was a big story we broke last week, of course. Now, for those travelling to university, there will be $98 million given for a regional apprentice and university student travel card worth around $250. Now, apparently commuters are also better off after the Perrottet budget. The government's put $95 million aside to help make a fast rail link from Sydney to Newcastle a reality. Oh dear, how long have we been hearing about this? The Perrottet government previously committed half a billion dollars to the plan in collaboration with the Commonwealth government, making a total of a billion dollars now available. Now, Mr Perrottet said once this becomes a reality, we will be seeing travel times between Sydney and Newcastle reduced from two and a half hours down to one hour, Sydney to Gosford in 25 minutes, then Sydney to the Gong in 45 minutes. Now, the $95 million will be used to upgrade existing infrastructure. Now, Dominic Perrottet said the works were an essential step in delivering his government's six cities vision by improving accessibility between the state's major centres. Commuters, we're told, will also benefit environmentally with zero emission buses hitting the road, which should reduce noise, improve air quality and make for a smoother ride. And the budget has outlined $219 million for the new high-tech fleet over the next seven years. Around 200 zero-emission buses are expected to be in service on the road by mid-next year. Now, renters in the state of New South Wales, well, I think they've lost in this budget. While home buyers have plenty of measures to celebrate, there's less support for those renting. The New South Wales Council of Social Services said more could be done to help those in social housing and people that require affordable renting schemes. 
The NCOS CEO, Joanna Quilty, said more households are doing it tough because of cost of living pressures and communities need more support, specifically around affordable housing. The affordable housing crisis was prevalent before the pandemic. COVID-19 has worsened it and has also been exacerbated by an unholy trinity of flood, fire and drought. Now, Miss Quilty has called for an increase funding uh, for social services sectors above the one-off $50 million social sector support fund created at the height of the COVID-19 lockdowns. Now, the government has committed $300 million to upgrade 15,500 social homes, but NCOS said with 50,000 people on wait lists, it's a lot, isn't it? To enter social housing, the upgrades will fall well short of what is actually required. All right, well, there's some of the, the winners and the losers from yesterday's New South Wales state budget. It's a big one, a big spending budget. Now, many, including the New South Wales opposition, say that uh, the amount being spent is a little reckless. Um, I don't know. See, the state of the books in New South Wales... Uh, they couldn't really be described as dire. I mean, certainly the pandemic and the money that's been spent on keeping our economy sort of turning over during the pandemic, uh, I mean, that was a big spend. It's, uh, I think it's quite a progressive budget, to be perfectly honest, and one you wouldn't normally get from a Liberal government. Now, of course, the critics and the opposition will say it's a budget designed to keep Dominic Perrottet in office next year. Of course, in New South Wales, we go to the polls in March. So I don't know. I mean, you can make up your own mind. I think it's a pretty rounded budget. And, you know, although the spend on social services could have been a lot more, I think um, there are some pretty good measures in place. Something else I do want to talk about, and we'll do it very soon on the program, is the issue of stamp duty. Uh, this is a big story in itself, and I think it may well be uh, a key issue leading into the next New South Wales election, mainly because uh, the the stamp duty reforms and the overhaul, uh, I mean, they're, they've been rejected by Labor, by Chris Minns and the New South Wales Labor Party. So this could perhaps be a big issue as we get closer and into the election in New South Wales. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back. Great to have your company on this Wednesday. It is the 22nd day of June. Marcus Paul in the morning, live around Australia on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and maybe you're listening to us on our podcast, which we like to call the broadcast. It's great to have your company, no matter how you're listening to us. Thank you for doing so. Well, I've got to be a little careful with this next story. Uh, the trial of the man accused of raping Brittany Higgins has been delayed. Why? Well, because of an extraordinary Logie's acceptance speech from Lisa Wilkinson. Now, Bruce Lerman has pleaded not guilty to sexually assaulting Miss Higgins inside Parliament House back in 2019. We know the story. He was due to stand trial in the ACT Supreme Court starting next Monday, June 27. 
But lawyers representing Mr Lerman were successful in their application to delay the trial following the publicity that surrounded Miss Wilkinson's speech. Now, the ACT Chief Justice, Lucy McCallum, said, her, said that her judgment was made through gritted teeth, warning the line between allegation and a finding of guilt had been, quote, obliterated. Now, this has been an issue and a problem with this whole situation from the get-go almost. Now, I'm not, I make no comment on, uh, you know, a presumption of innocence or guilt on Mr Lerman's part. But I have had some major issues with the fact that, you know, this story became a, a media story before it was actually uh, initially presented to police for a start. And it was politicised. It was weaponised. There's no doubt about that. Now, again, I mean no disrespect to, to Brittany Higgins. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those situations. As a journalist, I need to be very careful. We always have, and that's the way our law system works here in this country, a presumption of innocence. Innocent until proven otherwise. Anyway, uh, the Justice Lucy McCallum said, and I quote, The recent publicity does, in my view, change the landscape because of its immediacy its intensity and its capacity to obliterate the important distinction between an allegation that remains untested at law and one that has been accepted by a jury given a true verdict according to the evidence. That's what she told the court. Now, Ms Wilkinson is expected to be called as a witness when the trial commences. <laughs> right. The court heard Miss Wilkinson was given a clear and appropriate warning during a pre-trial conference on June the 15th. The defence could launch a stay application in the event of increased publicity. Now, at the time, she offered to read out her prepared Logie speech, noting she did not think she would win, but was stopped when the prosecution said they were not speech editors. Now, earlier, Defence Barrister Stephen Wybrow said the project's host speech did not have to be made. Mr Wybrow claimed more than 800,000 searches were made in relation to Miss Wilkinson's speech on Monday alone. 800,000! I, I wish she would have just shut up. It's not about you, Lisa. Anyway, he also noted reactions on Twitter and Instagram, as well as a radio program and other news outlets, as evidence of intense attention in the lead-up to the start of the trial. He said his client did not want to delay proceedings. He wants to get it on, but he wants a fair trial, Mr Wybrow said. The ACT Director of Public Prosecutions, Shane Drumgold, argued the Logie speech was a regurgitation of emotion and was not a significant departure from Miss Wilkinson's previous comments. Might and good journalism include being mindful of the fact and the impact of your reporting on criminal proceedings and remembering to insert the magic word, alleged, Justice McCallum responded. And rightly so. According to the Defence Counsel, the concern was that Miss Wilkinson's speech and social media posts, paired with a segment with uh, Jonesy and Amanda on the radio, so close to the trial, would impact the impartiality of the jury. 
Toward the end of the hearing, Mr Drumgold flagged the prosecution could seek an injunction of orders for Miss Higgins and Miss Wilkinson, as well as radio hosts Amanda Keller and Brendan Jones, which could prevent them from speaking publicly about the case. Uh, I don't think it'll bother Jonesy and Amanda too much because they don't need to. But for Lisa Wilkinson, well, you know, she's... Look, I understand she's close with Brittany Higgins. I get that. And I understand she supports her. And I I also appreciate and I get that. But she needs to shut up. Justice McCallum slammed the press for obliterating the line between an allegation and guilt. See, that's why on my program and whenever I've discussed this issue of the alleged rape inside a, you know, a a federal uh, MP's office, I've always said, you know, we've got to be careful. It's alleged. And even when the, the story first broke and police hadn't been properly informed, I refused to take calls on it because I don't think it's right. Anyway, uh, the implicit premise of Lisa Wilkinson's speech is to celebrate the truthfulness of the story she exposed, but she told the court she'd made a mistake for refusing a bid for suppression orders to prevent further publications about the case. I trusted the press. You were right and I was wrong, she told the court. This is the judge, by the way. She added unease around the seamless elision of the stories of Grace Tame, whose abuser was convicted and served a prison sentence and Miss Higgins, whose allegation has not yet been tested in a criminal trial. Grace Tame was talking about her experience after the man had been convicted and served a sentence of imprisonment, she said. Tame's important contribution to the legal landscape was to say the jury knows what he did, the public knows what he did, but I can't talk about it because of the law that prohibits me outing myself. Miss Higgins is treated as being in the same category and Justice McCallum said she is not. At the moment, she is not in that category. That's what really troubles me about the last round. Earlier this year, the Justice delivered a blunt warning the trial could be postponed or not proceed at all. A man has been accused of a very serious offence. It is an offence that can only be tried with a jury, she said in the ACT Supreme Court. The laws about contempt are well known in this country. Statements made before a criminal trial that might interfere with the administration of justice and, in particular, the ability of an accused man to have a fair trial risk falling in the classification of contempt. She said she strongly urged people to be careful. Anyway, look, she said if she could put it in blunted terms, the more people keep talking about the case, the greater the risk the prosecution will be stayed. Anyway, it's not yet clear when the trial will go ahead. The case will return to court for a mention on Thursday. As I said from the the outset, I've been very concerned by the publicity surrounding this, the media circus surrounding Brittany Higgins, and the fact that some including Lisa Wilkinson, have jumped on it and made it all about them. When, unfortunately, it's not. Well, unfortunately for Miss Wilkinson and, you know, effectively, unfortunately for both Mr Lerman and Miss Higgins. At the end of the day, only a jury can decide. Not you, not me, and certainly not bloody Lisa Wilkinson. Marcus Paul in the morning. 
right, welcome back, Marcus Paul. In the morning, as I mentioned yesterday, was budget day, but I think it was a little overshadowed somewhat by more industrial action. Yep, as you know, 2022 is the year of the strike. Uh, those on the right say effectively it's <laughs> some sort of political activism or even political vandalism by the unions. And, of course, the teachers are up to it in their necks. Teachers at both public and Catholic schools will shut down next Thursday, June the 30th, a day before they go on holidays in a bid to get a pay rise. The 24-hour strike action was agreed to by both the New South Wales Teachers Federation and the Independent Education Union at a meeting yesterday. Acting on uncompetitive salaries and unsustainable workloads is the only way to stop more teachers leaving and attract the people into the profession we need to fix the shortages. That's what Teachers Federation President Angelo Gavrilatos said yesterday. We asked the Premier to reconsider his decision to cap the pay of teachers at 3% when inflation is more than 5% rising, yet he did nothing. Education Minister Sarah Mitchell yesterday said the protests would be incredibly disruptive for families and students. She said also, can I just say, I think it's really disappointing that the education unions have made the decision to strike once again on the 30th of June. It's incredibly disruptive for families and for students. We've said many times as a government that we want to work constructively with the union to sit down and negotiate your war that absolutely still remains our prerogative. I met with the union as recently as last week to talk about some of the pressures, particularly around workload and what we can do in that space. That was the Education Minister, Sarah Mitchell. Look, I don't know. Is it fair for the unions and um, you know the teachers to go out on strike a day before they go on public holidays uh, or school holidays I should say uh, probably not fair on our kids do I understand why they're doing it yes yes I do a hundred percent because they've got a, <laughs> a premier who simply won't increase the wages to match inflation which he should absolutely he should and there are teacher shortages in New South Wales. There are problems in the education sector in this state of New South Wales. And another mass teacher strike across public and Catholic schools, you know, is testament to this. I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. Well, perhaps, you know, there, there could be some wiggle room considering this is a big spending budget, but there wasn't, of course, a, you know, what the teachers wanted. Yeah, the it's been capped, two and a half percent, and unfortunately, that's not good enough for many teachers that have been in contact with me, and uh, you know, and oh, I can understand the frustration. Anyway, uh, another planned strike. It's disruptive, absolutely. Will it be a pain for bi small business and those that are reliant on, uh, you know, the, uh, the the parents of these kids being able to work? I get it all. I, I understand it. But, you know, um, is it, as some on the right were claiming yesterday, some sort of political bastardry by the unions? Is Labor behind it and... Is it all aimed to put pressure 
on the New South Wales government ahead of the next state election. Probably all true. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning on this Wednesday. It is the 22nd day of June. The good news is... The days will get longer from today. Yesterday we had the winter solstice, which was, of course, the sun set before five o'clock yesterday. Today it'll set just after five o'clock and the days will get longer and hopefully warmer. I'm not a big fan of winter. Um, I much prefer spring. What's your favourite time of the year? I love spring. Yeah, spring is, you know, just that smell in the air of the pollen and uh, I mean I also suffer from allergies but anyway nothing wrong with a bit of hay fever so long as you're warm. Anyway uh, the, as I say the uh, the days will start to get a little longer and hopefully warmer. I didn't touch on uh, much of what the New South Wales Labor leader Chris Minns said yesterday uh, in my earlier comments on the budget we went through the winners and the losers so far but look Chris Minns has accused the state government of carelessly racking up debt with a big spending budget. Uh, The opposition's first comments following the budget's release late yesterday saw Chris Min say, this is a budget that's been handed down when you don't have a long-term plan for investment in Australia's largest state. You end up spraying money in every direction at a rate of knots months before the general election. (laughs) Well, I guess that was pretty predictable from Minzy. He wouldn't confirm what reforms would be scrapped, though, if Labor won the election next year, but he signalled their budget reply tomorrow will likely involve belt-tightening measures. He said, look, at the end of the day, we have to look at savings measures and we have to look at the budget and we have to look at the impact of debt on the operating side of the budget. He said... Uh, He said, rising interest on debt around the world is a concern, so it's not a victimless crime at this point. It has to be paid off. Shadow Treasurer Daniel Mookie, he accused the Premier of a buy now, pay later budget plan. In short summary of his fiscal strategy, uh, Mr Perrottet's budget plan is buy now, pay later. Uh, Daniel Mookie. The New South Wales families deserve a lot better than this if Mr Perrottet hadn't spent 12 years denying the problems that exist in our vital public services. He wouldn't have had to rush out so much money in this budget to try and fix them. All right, well, there we go. That's the official response yesterday from Labor. Look, the highlights, of course, from the Treasurer Matt Keane's budget speech included $15.9 billion to transform early education and childcare over the next decade, $7.2 billion in cost of living relief to be spent next financial year alone, that $150 subsidy to every school child next year to help families pay for uniforms, textbooks, bags and stationery, Thermal coal prices are now expected to be higher over the next four years, of course. So that's not... uh, I mean, look, any ease in the cost of living pressures may offset uh, that a little bit, but I don't know. I I really... (laughs) I really worry. Foreigners driving on our roads using an overseas driver's licence apparently will now have to sit a New South Wales driver's test. Really? Okay. Toll fees will rise by 14% by 
by the 2024-25 financial year. You're kidding. All right. Uh, Now, of course, the bottom line is it's a lot of money. But New South Wales's strong economic rebound from the COVID pandemic will apparently see the state post a better-than-expected budget result for this financial year, even though Treasurer Matt Keane's pre-election cash splash will cause net debt to explode to almost $115 billion. While the estimated $16.5 billion deficit for this financial year is better than forecast six months ago, Major health and flood recovery spending will lead to next year's deficit being three times as large as predicted in December's half-year update at $11.2 billion. Look, it's a budget centred around supporting families, $7.2 billion in cost of living relief to be spent next financial year in new and existing measures. All right, well, there we go. That's the response and some of the feedback from yesterday's budget. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, Marcus Ball in the morning around Australia. Live on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and maybe you're listening to us on the Prawncast. G'day to you. If you are, by the way, uh, downloading the podcast and listening to it, do us a solid. Maybe give it a share on your social media. That would be wonderful. Uh, look, there was an awful story yesterday with a woman from New South Wales killed after a buggy overturned on Hamilton Island. Now, authorities have revealed the frantic attempts by witnesses to save the life of a woman who was killed on her honeymoon. Oh, isn't that awful? A buggy driven by her new husband actually overturned. An off-duty fiery and dentist fought frantically to save the life of the 29-year-old New South Wales woman. She had married only three days earlier when the buggy, driven by her new hubby, overturned on Whitsunday Boulevard on the northern end of the island at around 4.30 Monday afternoon. The firefighter and dentist were among the first on the scene. They immediately started giving first aid to the woman who had sadly gone into cardiac arrest. Now, they were joined by a doctor and paramedic from the island who for 35 minutes performed CPR Uh, But to no avail, sadly, the woman died at the scene. Queensland Ambulance Acting Director Graham McIntyre praised the efforts of those who were first on the scene and fought to save the woman's life. He said when paramedics arrived, the patient had been removed from the roadway and placed on the side of the road in the lateral position to clear her airway, which is absolutely fantastic for first aiders to do. Police say the woman was not wearing a seatbelt and that early investigations suggested the vehicle's battery had gone flat and that the buggy overturned as the driver did a U-turn to go back and charge it. Oh, isn't that awful? Queensland Police Inspector Anthony Cowan said there was no indication of alcohol or dangerous driving. He said it's just tragic that the golf buggy, maybe through inexperience driving those types of vehicles while turning, has rolled on its side. Unfortunately, the female has fallen out and sustained life-threatening injuries. It just appears inexperience in driving that type of vehicle. He turned too quick and rolled on its side and unfortunately 
it has ended up with this result. Now, Inspector Cowan said Hamilton Island golf buggies were fitted with seatbelts and both police and island management enforced their use. Um, He said they are subject to the same condition as any gazetted road on Hamilton Island. It appears there was no seatbelt worn at the time. Um, Anyway, the woman's husband was not physically injured, uh, but I'm sure he's devastated this bloke on his honeymoon. Golf buggies, we're told, are the main form of transport on the Queensland tourist hotspot. I've not been to Hamilton Island. All travellers arriving on the island are required to watch an instructional video when they hire one, while guests at the exclusive Qualia Resort are given one-on-one tutorials. Uh, look, I've obviously uh, driven a golf buggy before being a golfer, but and I have seen one overturn. You've got to be very, very careful. Private residences available for vocational rentals often include buggies but are governed by the same requirements and regulations. In a statement, a spokesman for Hamilton Island said all vehicles on the island were required to operate in accordance with Queensland Government road rules and requirements. They are underpinned by our highest priority, which is the safety and well-being of our guests, residents and staff. Golf buggies on Hamilton Island, like other vehicles, are all equipped with appropriate safety equipment, including seatbelts and rules for operation. Hamilton Island and Queensland Police enforce these rules, regulations, and actively encourage all of our guests, residents, and staff to adopt a safety-first mindset when operating any vehicle on the island. At this time, our deepest thoughts and condolences with the family and friends of the couple involved in this tragic accident. Oh, isn't that awful? Really is. Anyway, this tragedy comes just weeks after a man was flown to Townsville in a serious condition after suffering head injuries in a buggy crash on the island as well. Now, locals say buggy crashes were a, quote, common occurrence on Hamilton Island as the dominant mode of transport. Um, And many say uh, that it's not frequently, but simply because there are a large amount of buggies on the island and inexperienced people are using them. They're just not a common vehicle used anywhere else. Yeah, look, obviously the lesson learned here is that if you do use a golf buggy, whether it be Hamilton Island or elsewhere, um, I mean, are they equipped... Golf buggies on golf. Uh, if you go to your local golf club and you hire a buggy, does that have a seatbelt? Well, I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. Not that I can recall. If you know any different, please uh, let me know. You can send me an email, uh, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au. <laughs> All right, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning on what's been a busy program so far this morning. I've got an update for you on the John Barillaro situation. Of course, we mentioned to you uh, just the other day uh, that uh, the former New South Wales Deputy Premier was again mired in controversy, this time over a plum appointment to New York. Well, the New South Wales government shortlisted candidates for the job of US Trade Commissioner in May last year before re-advertising the role and handing it to former Deputy Premier John Barillaro. 
Now, on Friday, of course, it was announced that Mr Barillaro, who resigned from Parliament in October last year, would be the state's trade commissioner for the US, based in New York. Now, Mr Barillaro had announced the creation of five New South Wales senior trade investment commissioners in November of 2020 as the then trade minister. A parliamentary inquiry is now set to look into the decision to appoint him to the United States role. Now, today, the New South Wales Upper House will debate a motion by Labor MLC Penny Sharp to defer Mr Barillaro's commencement in the role until the inquiry is completed and reports back. New South Wales opposition leader Chris Minns said he hoped Mr Barillaro would front that inquiry. He said we'll be asking questions. Senior bureaucrats, hopefully Mr Barillaro himself, because we need to understand why this decision was made and how this decision was made. This is how they treat public money. It's as if it's for their own personal political motives and not for the interest of the people of New South Wales, said Chris Minns. Now, in a statement... An investment New South Wales spokesperson said Mr Barillaro's appointment followed a lengthy and competitive global search process, adding that at the conclusion of the initial recruitment process, there were no suitable candidates for the role. Really? Candidates were shortlisted and assessed on a range of measures, including suitability for the role, qualifications, skills and experience, the statement read. As with other recent recruitment, this appointment was not required to go to Cabinet for approval. But documents obtained by New South Wales Labor state that the appointments were supposed to be put to the Cabinet. They also show the shortlist for the America's role was sent to senior bureaucrats in May 2021, but while recruitment for other roles progressed, the New York job was re-advertised at the end of the year. Now, according to documents, the salary for the various roles ranged from $450,000 to six hundred dollars Not bad if you can get it. The advertising of three roles, including the America's position, cost $8,200 when they were first advertised in the Australian Financial Review back in April 2021. Applications at that time were due to close on April 26 last year, and the recruitment firm NGS Global sent through their shortlist for the America's role on May 17. Now, the shortlist was discussed in an email the next day from Secretary of Treasury Michael Pratt to several colleagues, including Investment New South Wales boss Amy Brown. Now, Mr Pratt wrote, Firstly, Re-Americas, Woodrate and another person's name, both have been redacted as the highest on the panel. Both have international exposure, uh, a redacted name particularly relevant with his in-depth New York and markets exposure. Now, Mr Pratt then went on to detail two more candidates who he rated a little less highly. Now, another email from the HR department stated they aim to have the New York role recruited by last August. A further email about the recruitment of the Tokyo job detailed that all roles have a structured approval protocol process prior to employment. The preferred candidate meets with the Treasurer, the Deputy Premier and then the Premier. If endorsed by all three, a Cabinet appointment form is prepared 
and added as a cabinet agenda item. Once endorsed by cabinet, a contract can then be offered to the candidate for negotiation. Now, the email, dated April the 6th, 2021, explained the preferred candidate for the Tokyo position had met with and had been endorsed by the Treasurer and Deputy Premier at the time, Mr Barilaro, and was due to meet with the Premier. The appointment of the North Asia job was announced by Mr Barilaro in July and the UK role in October. Investment Minister Stuart Ayres announced the South East Asia and Middle East roles in December last year, but another ad for the Americas was run in the Australian Financial Review on the next day, with applications due a month later. Yeah, watch this space, as they say. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have your company around Australia here on Starter FM, iHeartRadio, tune in, and of course on the Prawncast, the podcast. And masks will no longer be required on several major international Qantas flights, according to a leaked company memo, which was sent to airline staff. In-flight mask rules have been lifted in aircraft for non-stop flights destined for countries where masks are not required by their authorities, according to this memo. Flights taking off from New South Wales, Queensland, Western Australia, which are bound for the United Kingdom, the United States and Europe, will no longer require passengers to don masks. The letter said services out of Victoria have not been given the go-ahead to ditch the mask rule, but the airline will confirm once it has. The news brought to light yesterday comes after the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee recommended the lifting of mask mandates across Australian airports last week. The Qantas memo said the change to in-flight mask requirements on some international flights is an important step in our transition to living with COVID and we welcome this change. The airline added the studies revealed the risk of transmission within flight cabins was, quote, very low. The flying kangaroo said they respect and understand some crew and passengers prefer to continue wearing masks. And these will be available for use on board at boarding gates, lounges and crew rooms. Wearing masks inbound and domestically on their aircraft will remain unchanged. I don't know why that's the case. Anyway, but a Virgin Australia spokesperson told the Daily Mail Australia that uh, the changes uh, on wearing masks during flights wouldn't extend to them. That's Virgin Australia. So there we go. So wearing masks inbound and domestically on aircraft will remain unchanged. So you need to wear a mask there. Anyway, they are required at the international airports into which we fly. Uh, this is for Virgin Australia. So, I mean, they go to Denpasar and uh, in Indonesia. They also go to Nandi, of course, in Fiji. So passengers are still required to wear masks on board those short-haul international services. Uh, but Virgin say they're still working with relevant authorities on the requirements for masks on board and continue to provide updates as it is appropriate. Now, elsewhere around the world, uh, the European Union stopped enforcing mask wearing on flights last month 
though application of the rule change was down to individual member states. Yeah, uh, look, I think it's really, it should be up to passengers, to be perfectly honest. I mean, if, <laughs> if you want to wear a mask and keep yourself safe that way, then go for it. All right? But if you don't, well, then... <laughs> A lot of people don't like wearing them, particularly if you're having to wear glasses, you get a little fogged up and all the rest of it, and some people have difficulty breathing with them. Anyway, where can you fly to and from without masking up? Passengers flying from New South Wales, Western Australia and Queensland to three international destinations will be exempt from wearing masks. These destinations include the United States, the United Kingdom and Europe, according to the leaked letter to Qantas staff. Those flying out of Victoria will have to keep wearing masks. Mask rules for flights into the country from overseas, as well as domestic ones, of course, as I mentioned, well, they will remain the same. Look, again, I think it's up to personal choice, uh, apart from where it's obviously mandated as a rule. Have we moved on from masks? Yeah, I hate the things, personally. I mean, look, I'll wear one if I'm, you know, required to and mandated to, but personally, I hate the things. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, well, that's enough for today. Thank you for your company. Uh, if you've been listening to us on the iHeartRadio platform, thank you via TuneIn or, of course, on starterfm.com.au. Thank you very much. Now, if you missed any of today's program, including uh, my take on the state budget, the winners and the losers, etc., uh, the broadcast. The podcast will be available on your favourite podcasting platform. Uh, maybe you're listening to it now. <laughs> uh, we upload it uh, a little later on today, okay? Anyway, if you do listen to the podcast, please do us a solid and give it a share on your social media if you wouldn't mind. Enjoy the rest of today. Please take it uh, nice and uh, easy wherever you are and look after each other. We'll be back tomorrow between 7 and 9 with all the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, goodies. This will get you the goodies.